Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Armin Aguale. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, Irrational implodes and, deep down, has some opinions about women. Also, you can gamble in Street Fighter, King is going public, and the year of Luigi comes to a bitter close. Plus, we'll have people talking about Twitch Plays Pokemon and a bit of romance. That's Conrad Creeling talking about visual novels. But first, Irrational Studios is fading into the wind. So like a sad song. Yeah, oh, I thought I needed... Oh, God, everyone's ears are going to bleed. Um, <laughs> I thought I needed something. I mean, the Bioshock Infinite development, development developer has announced that after 17 years of continuous existence, it's going to wind down. So, Rational was founded in 1997 and was best known for developing System Shock 2 before being bought by Take-Two, being renamed 2K Boston, and putting out the original Bioshock. Eventually, they were renamed Irrational in 2010, and most recently, they put out Bioshock Infinite, which actually sold pretty well, which is why this news is kind of surprising. Yeah, so on Irrational's website, co-founder Ken Levine put up a big post and said that this is his that this is the end of a company as we know it. Um, I'll be taking a I'll be starting a smaller, more entrepreneurial endeavor at Take Two. That is going to mean parting ways with all but 15 members of the Irrational team. There's no great way to lay people off, and our first concern is to make sure that people who are leaving have as much support as we can give them during this transition. So on that, Levine says that other Take-Two studios as well local developers are going to be on hand during a recruiting day to hire up employees that aren't part of that special team of 15 Levine is taking with him to 2K, uh, or to Take-Two rather, but, you know... During the d- development of Bioshock Infinite, Irrational employed 200 people. It's probably wind down a bit since then. I mean, that's like that was when they were at their top. Um, but that's no matter what, it's still going to be over 100 and a lot of people. So yeah, these these people would have just wrapped up work on uh, Burial Let's See Part Two, which is Bioshock Infinite's last piece of DLC. Yeah, yeah. Um, now. Th- to some extent, this isn't a surprise. I mean, it's a surprise that Rational is disappearing entirely, but it's not a surprise that Ken Levine is kind of staying out of the big game development. There were some hints after Bioshock Infinite that he wasn't quite ready to get back into the big game development phase. Yeah, last October, I mean, in interviews right as Infinite was coming out or right before it came out, Levine says he wasn't really planning anything at Irrational beyond DLC. Um it is possible that this it was his choice to leave, and I guess Take Two just said, Well, we don't need the rest of this anymore because you're the you're the key, I guess, they, they thought. Bioshock Infinite had, like, a notoriously, like, troubled development. Yeah, yeah. it was long, going, going on for how, how long? Five years? Four years? Yeah, and they they cut features, they added features, and they had to bring in a closer to kind of make sure the game shipped at all. It was getting to a point where the game just wasn't even feature complete. Like, um, for, and, like, and you can look at that game, you play that game, and you can feel its, like, unfinished kind of slapdash nature at times. Like, yeah. stuff like, I think we've talked about on the show before, just how the guns and plasmid, or uh, vigors system just don't make sense because they very clearly were unfinished and meant to be reversed, or at some point were reversed and switched very quickly for the you know at the last minute. Yeah, it's it's Bioshock is a fairly in, uh, interesting game when it comes to looking. I mean, trying to get a perspective in the studio. the The interesting thing, though, is that I mean, Levine. I thought when I first heard this, I thought Levine was going to go out to do a screenwriting thing. I mean, he yeah. he's supposedly attached to write the script for Logan's Run at one. Yeah, Brothers. the Logan's Run reboot, and I think something else. He's also expressed interest in writing other things. He's always wanted to. I think he's kind of wanted to switch from game design to screenwriting at least for a little while. I mean, because a lot of his strong suits seem to be not that he doesn't have. Um, 
not does he have like ambitions within game design itself, but a lot of his ambition seems to rest within narrative. And he yeah. started as a screenwriter. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not surprised that that's kind of where he wants to go back to. Or if I mean, game development is hectic. Game development is a really tough process. And um, if he has a career back there, I wouldn't be surprised. But the um, it's just like I I wonder like who approached who on this. Yeah, because the fact that irrational is disappearing makes me think that it was more like okay we can save this we can save this one talent so he doesn't go to work elsewhere right um give him something to work with and then shut it the rest of the studio i mean cuz i mean 15 he's going to have 15 guys that's a much lower risk venture whatever it is he i think he mentioned something about it. it's like we talked about before he wants to kind of focus on narrative stuff at yeah. the company, he 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 definitely wants to. He talked about like narrative Legos or something like seeing how different things fit together. He wanted something with narrative replayability. The idea that you can—it's a story that you play through multiple times, which just sounds kind of like a visual novel. Yeah. Hey, listen. Yeah. Well, we we got we let's got more. date Elizabeth, I guess. <laughs> well, you, you know what? That was—I mean—with a lot of the choice systems in his games. I mean, there was supposed to be a choice system in Bioshock Infinite, a cut, just because right. it was too complex and they didn't have enough time. The Bioshock um, Infinite feels like it was seven games that they were making at the same time, and then just decided, okay, we have to put these together into one big game. It felt like they were they were simultaneously building the world, building game mechanics, and building um a, like a narrative system, and switching all that around as they came up with new ideas because each one seemed cooler than the last. Yeah, like the. The rail, for instance, I think a good example is that the rail system in Bioshock Infinite was, I mean, when they gave you full use of it, it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But they don't give you the opportunity all that option, all that often. It just seemed like, oh, they built this thing because it made sense in the context of the world, but then didn't quite build it into right into the into the design right. of the world. And I think one of the things is back in like initial previews of the game where they announced it was like, yeah, the rails will connect all around the open world. It's like, well, none of the, neither of those things happened. Yeah, no, it's not only is it entirely like. Bioshock Infinite is a much more linear game than um, the original Bioshock. Yeah. And also, it's much smaller. Like, Columbia is very tiny. I mean, it, it's interesting. When they were when they were building the, the board game, they were trying to figure out how to map things out. Mm-hmm. They The board game designers re- realized that Irrational had actually no idea how the world fit together. Like, yeah. it was just like, they just had these set pieces. Um, and, and if you walk around, like, at one point in Bioshock Infinite, you're allowed to walk around Columbia. Just freely, not not at the very beginning, but kind of towards the middle part of the game, where you can just walk around the whole. All of Columbia is open to you. It's just a circle. Yeah, it's just one street that goes in a circle. Yeah, it's it's kind of bizarre. It's kind of bizarre what yeah. ended up happening there. The I wouldn't be surprised. I take two. Then saw that and said, "Hey, look, we don't want to. We don't want to repeat this. Right? Like this. This is a um, way to go." I mean, and I guess what it was with Levine gone, they figured it's like, well, this studio, Bioshock Infinite, sold well, but. I think it, over a million copies is nothing bad, but you know, in these in this market, Take Two might have been dreaming Call of Duty numbers. I, I also like a lot of people have been accusing Ken Levine of like, why did you shut down the studio after you let they couldn't have installed someone else on top? And I think that's incredibly like silly. Yeah, uh, like I'm it. sure. I'm sure his leaving had nothing to do with it. Yeah, no the the thing with um, like really, if Take Two wanted to rational to continue, it would continue. Right, it they would have installed someone new, and they but Ken Levine leaving was just you were what was keeping you were keep you were who what was keeping this studio essentially in our in our good books. Yeah, because otherwise, without Ken, without their big visionary that sell you know that you can put on the box like Sid Meier, it's a studio that took five years to turn around a one and a half million, two million selling game. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
it looks like, I mean, it looks like it had fairly good financials. What was it? It was about over a million copies? Yeah, I think something like two million at last count. And it... it uh, I guess it just had to be those Call of Duty numbers. I guess yeah, that's, that's, that's that's what they that's what Take Two wanted, and it's it's not that. And Take Two's never been about that, which is what's surprising to me. Well, Take Two is kind of a balance. They get those games that do sell gangbusters. I mean, they have their sports games, that's true. and then they do then they kind of balance that out with like, okay, well, we'll have these. But they have like Borderlands, which is what like you know four million, you yeah. know, which is pretty big still. Like it's it's fantastic, but... and it sells a lot. Yeah. I think is the key one there though. Um, and I mean, b- and didn't take them. Four to five years to make. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Speaking anyway, of money. Speaking of money, it looks like Capcom and Virgin Gaming are going to team up to add legally sanctioned gambling to Street Fighter Four. Yeah, though we can't call it gambling. They don't call themselves gambling because they focus on skill-based games. But uh, you're pay you're betting money on matches, and you need to be over eighteen to play. So if it walks like gambling and talks like gambling, it has cigarettes. It has cigarettes rolled up to its sleeves like gambling. It's uh, like essentially you you put money in your account and bet a certain amount amount on each match, play the match on your three sixty or PS three, and then receive your money after reporting results to the Virgin Gaming website, which Vir- is actually sort of a like bad system. I've 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 looked at people who have been using it. You actually have to report in because they can't tell if you won or lost a match. That's wait what? You have to tell them if you won or lost, and if it's contested, like if two people, you have to provide the um, what's it called? You have to provide like video, like a picture of the windscreen, like evidence. Wait, wait, wait. So this isn't going to be a mechanical system? No. Oh, that's. Okay. This yeah. Is this is, they've already they already have this with um, Virgin Gaming, which was in 2010. Already does these money matches with uh, FIFA, Madden, NBA, 2K14, and NHL14. Right. And this is kind of just how it works. It's not a great system. No. This seems incredible. This seems like incredibly half uh, half done. Because I think what it would be is that if they wanted to be perfect, they would have to add a patch to to the entire game. It's like this is the Virgin Gaming patch. Um. Like, why not? But, I mean, if you're going to bother to make this deal to begin with... I, or at least on PC, where it would sort of make sense, where everything's on the internet anyway. Yeah, I mean, that that's... I mean, but this, no, this is 360 PS3 only. Yeah. <laughs> this is a... not. This just seems like a silly idea. Like, I, it seems like this should, this should be something that has happened. Like, I wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. that gambling occurs around... Um, oh, Evo yeah, or tournaments anything. all the yeah. time. Money matches are a huge deal. But, like... I mean, this on this level, it just seems like a really silly way it's to... It's cool to see Capcom, like, legitimizing it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like, this is kind of a poor system. Another big complaint is that version takes a huge cut of it's your earnings. 12%. 12%. So, and the minimum amount that you can put into your account, not the minimum amount you can bet, but the minimum you can put into your account is $10. Right. So, um, two uh, two reviewers uh, did a money match, and, you know, the winner takes out 20 and so he takes out... To twelve percent after the twelve, he takes the twenty out of his out of the PayPal account they send it to. After the twelve percent cut, Virgin takes and the three dollar transaction fee PayPal has, he was lost with like eleven dollars. Oh Jesus! <laughs> that's so. That seems like. I mean, I assume most people are going to go aren't going to go incredibly high stakes on this, right? So that seems like you're you're basically losing a lot of your winnings. Yeah. Uh, you can pay five dollars a month to keep to to, to get rid of that twelve percent cut, and as long as you don't take out your uh, earn the three dollars a flat fixed fee for the transaction. So if you only take it out like once a month and you do a lot of this, it's not that big a deal. Um, but that means you're gambling in Street Fighter all the time. <laughs> yeah, that does seem. Man, this sounds like just an easy way to getting like a a sub world of <laughs> just uh, a seedy underbelly of crime, yeah. which is what's fascinating because this is based in Toronto. 
Oh, really? So, yeah, so it has to be policed by the OLG, right? The Ontario... Uh, Lotto and Gambling. Yeah, yeah. Lotto, Lotto and Gaming Commission or whatever. Yeah. That's... It has to be. That's fast. We should look into that. Yeah, we but, should talk to them. Like, I, I looked at like, we should call these people because <laughs> this is weird. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean... I, the uh, I mean, if Richard Bran- Branson can use uh, Street Fighter bets to finance his next space voyage, this seems altogether a good venture. Yep. Do you think Richard Branson is going to be the next Reed Richards? Uh, I think that he is. I should next Reed Richards if there was a Reed Richards. He's too busy, distracted, making ice cubes in the shape of his own face <laughs> to um, to worry about that stuff right now. Speaking of egos, <laughs> speaking of kings. Um, it looks like uh, King, the developer of Candy Crush, Candy Crush Saga and owner of the candy trademark, is filing an IPO. Yes. So according to their report, the the top game, of course, is Candy Crush Saga, which has over um, 93 million active users. Um, King's profits jumped from $8 million last year to $568 million this year. Literally 560 more. Half a billion profits. Yeah, that's insane. Uh, they expect that IPO to also be worth about $500 million, half a billion dollars. Um, admittedly, in their uh, disclosure, they do own up to the risks of investing in them. They point out that 78% of their profit is from Candy Crush, and their rapid expansion could possibly be a sign of their impending doom. What they mention is uh, about HID on page uh, 54 of the disclosure is that Candy Crush hit peak usership a few months ago and is actually starting to drop like a rock. Which is, I mean, this is what happens to Facebook games or right. like or uh, iOS, iOS games. games, anything. Um, gross bookings in the quarter ended December 31st slightly declined compared to the quarter ending September 30th. The decline was driven by a decrease in Candy Crush Saga gross bookings. Revenue is down because Candy Crush Saga is down, and Candy Crush Saga being down means 73% of your profit is down. It's not a, like, if you are an investor and you're looking at this, it is not a good long-term investment. It's just, it's, this is, they had one good game that got super addictive, and then their next best one is what? It's Pet Rescue Saga with 15 million users. Then Farm Heroes has 8 million, so that's like incredibly far away their next, from... I think the rest of their games combined don't even match up to Candy Crush Saga. Yeah, so there's... Unless you're willing to take a much... I think they should be willing to take a much lower evaluation. This doesn't seem like a great long-term prospect. So it seems like the, the Draw Something guy is all over again. Yeah. Uh, King actually got rid of ads in Candy Crush Saga last year, figuring that microtransactions were lucrative. Uh, now that that is going away, the shine is starting to come off that candy apple. In a graph from Business Insider, the average interest in Candy Crush peaked at about mid-2003 shortly after release and is now dropping back down. Angry Birds experienced a higher peak in 2012 and is now going through a similar drop. Uh, ditto for Farmville. You can see that graph. It's actually really fun because Tetris seems to be about the same from like the 80s right. and everything else peaks and drops. Yeah, we'll have a link to that on the website. The um, Meanwhile, the... Uh, International Game Developer Association slammed King over their trademark attempts for over the last few weeks. Um, just a quick summary. Yeah, last last week or two weeks ago, King filed a trademark for the rights to the word candy as it pertained to video games, as well as, and then we found out they also owned the rights to Saga as it pertained to video games. And they started uh, suing people like the Banner Saga and Candy Slots over their games. And then those guys decided that we're not going to, do anything about that. I mean, the Candy Slots um, lawsuit turned out to be real, but the Banner Saga was just kind of um, wild, basically wild-throwing. Right. Uh, was, uh... Um, meanwhile, uh, King, while owning these copyrights, is also cloning a lot of games. 
Yes, that so. was they. They have been. I mean, that's just notorious. That's part for the course for being a iOS game. Yeah, or... I mean, Candy Crush Saga is a bejeweled clone. Bubble yep. Witch Saga is Bubble Bobble. But also, I think uh, Pack and Run. Yes, is uh, was a game called Ghost Scamper that was pitched to them. And uh, turned out to be they like we like this. Somebody else bought it, so we should clone it. And like fairly, we have a, we had, we have a story from this in previous week. It was uh, we'll link to it, and it was pretty good. Um, <laughs> in the uh, official statement on the website, the IDGA called their trademarks predatory and in opposition to the values of openness and cooperation we support industry wide. Yeah, the IGDA says their legal department will provide deeper analysis soon and presumably help out indie developers that are trapped in King's terrible legal web right now. Which, you know what, it's uh, good to hear that because this is really bizarre. Um, it's it, nice to have somebody standing up. Yeah. You know? Because, I mean, what they're doing is predatory. I mean, it is kind of be, trying to, and I think it's kind of a reaction to the idea that they might not have long-term profits. So if they're not going to have, if they just have one big game, they might as well milk that game for, for as all much. it's worth right now and then and then bail out in, you know, two years. Yeah, I mean, the uh, an IPO just seems like a step too far, especially with all this put together. It just doesn't I seem like a good investment. I can't imagine anybody's going to invest in them. Yeah. I can't. Especially, like you said, especially with all this stuff going on, it just seems like a terrible plan. Speaking of terrible plans, um, the, uh, it looks like Deep Down doesn't think that... Uh, the developers of Deep Down don't think that women can dodge roll. So during a live stream of the upcoming PS4 free-to-play dungeon crawler Deep Down, the game's producer, Kazunori Sugiura, said that there won't be any playable female characters for narrative reasons. So, understandably, this uh, made people angry. Yeah. Uh, people assumed what Sugiura meant that there was that there were 12 playable characters in Deep Down. All of them were male. But on the game's Facebook page, he clarified that he meant something way more ridiculous. There's actually one playable playable character. He is male, and he will be assisted by 11 other ravens, explorers who could see the past of an object by touching it. Of course, that main character is customizable enough to be part of a four-player co-op multiplayer mode with strangers on the internet who all have to look different. But of course, they can't be female. For, for narrative reasons. Narrative reasons. There's a story he has to adhere to. That because that's the law. Yeah. No. It's like he, again, like we were talking about this earlier. It's like he wrote the laws on a chalkboard and then didn't, like, forgot that he wrote them <laughs> and that they're not real. Um, Like, when you have a, like, when you have a, oftentimes in a story where there is a problem and you say, oh, well, I can't do this because the story doesn't allow me to do this. You wrote the story, you didn't the, you? You like, make the rules. You can change them. Yeah. Um, Sugiura didn't straight out say that there that one or more of the ravens are female, so it's possible that the narrative excuse is that women don't have magic memory powers. Uh, alternatively, uh, you are the special chosen one, and some of the other ravens are female, but they're not the chosen ones because only men are chosen. Uh, both are stupid, and Sugiura should feel bad. Oh my god, it's I I can't I, I can't imagine this aside from like just lack of foresight or <laughs> lack of how society works. Um, for for this kind, of, we for, don't even know what the narrative of this game is yet. The, the crazy thing is that it's a free to play game with one customizable character, I, and like, isn't it just going to be confusing even to have four dudes just like mean, walking around in the same armor all the time? Yeah, I mean, it would at, at the very minimum, it would it would kind of like divide characters graphically. Like, it would you'd be able to see it through the aesthetics. I'm really afraid they're going to sell female character models as DLC. Oh, that would be terrible. That's the microtransactions. That is the microtransactions is having a character who's, like, socially responsible. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah that'd be funny. Um, or their narrative is reverse Y the Last Man. <laughs> X the Last Lady. <laughs> that, that would actually be really funny. The, um... 
I mean, I'm so, I'm so mad about this. It, it's a weird thing to it's a weird thing to to happen considering that it's a weird thing to admit to too yeah. because he just said it during the live stream and it's like, well, of course, yeah. narrative reasons, narrative like. I can't, I, I can't understand like what those narrative reasons even might be. Like, what would what would the narrative reason be? The narrative reason is that women stay in the kitchen, of course. Like, what are you <laughs> saying? <laughs> what are you saying? What? Well, what? <laughs> what? Tune in next time for Daniel screaming and <laughs> casual sc- and casual sexism, the game industry, and Daniel. <sighs> Anyway, ending out this year. Speaking of of sad, depressing (laughs) news. Looks like we have an end date for the year of Luigi. Can we play a funeral dirge? (laughs) Oh, Danny boy. This is the second time I'm singing during the show. It's the worst idea. Uh, Miyamoto announced on the Miiverse that the year of Luigi will be ending on March 18th, 2014. Um, the Miiverse threads will also be closed on that day. So be sure to get your Luigi messages in quick before deliverance comes upon us all. I mean, it's not a surprise that it's finally coming to an end. It was supposed <laughs> the to be... The year of Luigi. It's been about a year. So, I mean, we're, we're right on track for this stuff. Um, but, I don't know. How do you feel about the year of Luigi? Do you think it was all that successful? There were three Luigi games. One of them was DLC. Yeah. Um, what, what, okay, what, we had Luigi's Mansion 2. Yes. That uh, was apparently okay, but too long. Yeah, Super Luigi... Uh, sorry, um, what was it called? Yes, uh, New Super Luigi U. Yes. And uh, Mario and Luigi Dream Team. Okay. And I hated Mario and Luigi Dream Team. We Ma- had a review on the site. Yeah. The Mario and Luigi Dream Team and we had... Uh, was it? Did, I thought you could buy the Luigi pack separately. Yes. It, would it work on its own? Uh, yes, if you, just bought the, if you just bought the disc, yeah. Okay. If you bought a physical version of the game. And apparently that was great um, because, you know... It was just harder levels. Yeah, just harder levels, but they were fun. And Luigi's Mansion was pretty okay, and people seem to like Super Luigi Brothers, which is uh, Mario Brothers, but backwards, and you play as a green dude. Uh, what was it? There's also um, Dr. Luigi. Oh, yeah. There was Dr. Luigi. I forgot about that, which, which is really amazing, because if you play Dr. Luigi, Luigi is standing on this pedestal that says Year of Luigi on it, which is really depressing, like a, ki- <laughs> like a 40-year-old man who still hangs up his Spelling Bee trophies from grade three. <laughs> oh, that'd be re- that is that is shockingly depressing because I mean overall this year wasn't wasn't that great for Nintendo. I mean when I mean, it comes to yeah, Wii. that's the thing, right? And I feel like and I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna write an article when the year of Luigi ends about how the year of Luigi is responsible for Nintendo's financial crisis. A fix year of a fix a fix Nintendo article with the year of uh, Waluigi <laughs> because the only way to go is 180 degrees back. So um, R- right into the stupidity, like right into the Myers of moron <laughs> moronism. <laughs> I, I don't know. The Myers of Moronism is my favorite fighting fantasy choose-your-own-adventure book. <laughs> so, uh, farewell, sweet prince, and may flights of angels lead thee to thy rest. A moment of silence, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. God, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> and that's it for news. Okay, let's log into Twitch, get into the chat. Red, let's move right six up three. Right six up, no, not press start nine times. Uh, Daniel, why is Red having a hard time not walking into that tree? Well, you did say let's play Pokemon, so I assumed you meant everyone. 
what, what do you mean everyone? I mean you, me, and about 60,000 other people. Oh, God damn it, he just walked off the ledge again. Prone to see, like, Red just having a seizure all the time, just going crazy, moving back and forth, looking all over the place. Uh, pulling out his Helix Fossil, pulling out his ticket, pulling out anything he just generally has in his pocket to just take a look at it. And I really like to imagine what the non-playable characters in the game are seeing when they see our character walking in circles and holding up random items. Whenever I think of that, I start laughing. So this is Twitch Plays Pokemon, in which 60,000 people attempt to play one game of Pokemon Red. A couple things to explain off the top. Pokemon Red is a game about catching monsters, in which you have to beat 8 gym leaders and then the Elite Four, first released in 1998. And Twitch.tv is a live video streaming service. Last week, an Australian put the two together like chocolate and peanut butter so that the inputs from the chat window on the video were connected to an emulator playing Pokemon Red. As of writing, they've played for over 8 days, have 5 badges, and can barely get a Snorlax to wake up. It's amazing. So here's how it works. You type right into the chat, and the main character, Red, will walk right. Type A, the game will press A, etc. The game started with a couple hundred people playing it. It was difficult, but they managed to get through a solid quarter of the game. And then things went nuts. A couple hundred became a couple thousand, a couple thousand became 10,000, and then 50,000, then 100,000. It only capped at 120,000 people playing at one time. With over 18 million views, it is the top streamed game on Twitch, above Dota, StarCraft, and the most popular game in the world, League of Legends. It's caused Twitch to overhaul their chat system. They're currently working on fixes to make sure the chat function service functions better under stress. What caused is that people in the chat were frantically typing inputs into the chat window, faster than even the game could recognize them. And then part of the players spawned a new deity, and then the game split between anarchy and democracy. It's long. Here to explain what the heck happened is Alex Rose. He's a moderator on the Twitch Plays Pokemon subreddit and keeps track of the game's progress. Yeah, okay, so, like, not many people were actually in the start, and it's not been recorded. So not much is known, but I, I have gleaned a few things um, about the beginning, and that's, we caught Pidgey, and Charmeleon got a really high level, and then beat Brock, and then... They went to Mount Moon, and just before Mount Moon, caught Jay Leno. By catching Jay Leno's, he means a Pokemon called Rattata. Uh, that's name was spelled J-L-V-W-N-N-O-O-O-O, or Jay Leno. Then entered Mount Moon, took forever to get through there, leveled up massively, went to Misty. Then we fought our way through Nugget Bridge, uh, beat Misty. Now, the, the biggest things that have been huge problems for us... Were, well, one that was going to be a big problem was the gym uh, in Vermilion City, which has a switch puzzle where you've got to press one switch out of 15 bins, and then it can be in, in any bin, and then you've got to press the next bin consecutively without pressing any wrong ones. But as it happened, we pressed the one above us and then pressed the one below us and immediately got through. So, like, we've had a bit of luck. But then the, the place at which stuff got really clever was Route 9, which is between Cerulean and Rock Tunnel. And there's a ledge on it that's about eight, something like eight tiles wide, but only one tile high. So you can jump off it really easily. And what happened was we were jumping off it over and over and over again. 
and we ended up staying there for 16 hours. And 14 hours into that, I wrote this thing, this Reddit post called uh, The Meta Strategy, or How We Beat the Ledge. And essentially how it works is the game has 26 or around 26 seconds of input lag. So everything we type happens immediately in the game world, but we don't see the effects of what's happened for another 26 seconds. So everything we do, we have to predict the future to type properly, but the vast majority of the people in the stream either can't predict the future or don't know they have to predict the future. So I, I, I managed to get like the, the IRC room and the Mibit and the Tetris room to just all group together and work on this plan to just hammer A and start over and over again while we were aligned with the ledge. And what that meant was that for 26 seconds, we got stuck in this giant menu. And then the game, now like Ash's position in the game, or Red rather, Red's position in the game was now as we saw it, even though we were seeing like where he is 26 seconds ago, he was still in that same position. So now everyone could walk across the ledge and know where they were because before we were approaching the ledge from above so there were residual down presses from the past and people like all these incoming so people think it was trolls but it just wasn't the case it was people from the past pressing the down button because they didn't realize in the future we'd be on the ledge so we like that's a very clever it's just amazing that we executed it and i was very proud of everyone at that point uh and beating the ledge uh, like was probably the proudest I've been of everyone in the stream because we just like totally overcame that and it was amazing like it, it was just such a good feeling like winning that I stayed up to like 7am that day I went to I told everyone this is the strategy I'm sure it'll work and and talked to people and convinced them and said please do this when, when I'm gone and then I, I went to bed and I just couldn't sleep and I, ju- I just got up 10 minutes later and, and looked what was going on and someone in the IRC was like oh it's working, it's working, it's working so I, I just quickly jumped in and looked to the, the, the Twitch and we'd done it and we got across it and everything was amazing Unfortunately soon after this victory the players started having religious clashes See, in Pokemon, there's a cave where you can pick one of two ancient fossils, the Helix Fossil and the Dome Fossil. You can use your top item, and it'll, and Ash will try, and Oak will say, oh no, you can't use that in your battle right now. So we kept using it over and over again, and bringing up the item menu, and using these items. Originally, it was the Moonstone, and people started worshipping the Moonstone as a god, but then we threw it away, and we threw away the Nugget. We end up throwing away a lot of things. Um... But we couldn't throw away the Helix Fossil. And because the Helix Fossil had come through with us for so long in the game, people started worshipping it as a god. And, like, I am being completely serious. They worship, they idolize this, and they are religious about it. They will, like, commit acts of religious, like, revenge and stuff on, on other people because of, in the name of the Helix Fossil. Helixers have labeled certain Pokemon false prophets, like Eevee. They blame mistakes, like releasing two Pokemon back into the wild, on these false prophets. So, in Sacrifice, they released the transformed Eevee, a Flareon, back into the wild. Helixers also believe in anarchy. It's not what you think. After a couple occasions where Red was stuck in one room for hours, the anonymous creator added an additional mode to the game, called Democracy. In Democracy mode... 
Every 10 seconds, the game follows what the majority of people want. The creator then called the original mode, where whatever you type into the game happens, Anarchy Mode. Helixers prefer the original mode, while Domers prefer democracy. Everything that people associate with the dome, I associate with, like, I, I really like. And I think the fossils themselves are great representations of the game because the Helix fossil is something that constantly gets in our way. And as I'm watching the stream right now, we just use the Helix fossil. Um, the we're con like it's constantly hindering us and and creating problems, and people find it funny. And I'm not saying Helixes are bad because we need them. They're mostly the people who create the amazing, funny content that, that makes this subreddit great. Um. But they're also the people who think it's funny to stay in the item menu for hours and not get in anywhere and run around in circles and not do much. Whereas domers, the dome fossil, we never touched it in the game, we never interacted with it, it's never bothered us, and it's never hindered us. And to me, like the, the dome fossil represents what's interesting about the game to me, and that's getting ahead and winning this game. But hey, regardless of their religious views, everybody can agree on one thing. This sure is an entertaining game of Pokemon. It kind of annoyed me that people were pressing down so much and battles were taking so long because people were just spamming down and using the Helix Fossil and the Moonstone and the Nugget. And it bothered me to some extent. Like, I'm, I'm not saying I got annoyed or anything, but it was sort of like, guys, seriously, can we just like play the game? But now it's just become so part of the community that that's just gathered it's like red's persona is now the stupid guy who walks around and does dumb stuff constantly that like that's his character and you kind of need those people to mess about and i, I don't like i have no problem with the helixes uh, i think it i think it's hilarious they've made a great community and stuff like that um but at the same time if you if you want to talk eevee to me or you want to talk democracy uh, I will be happy to give you an earful about why Eevee was a great idea and why democracy works really well <laughs> and doesn't detract from the game. It's just so addictive to watch. I mean, Pokemon Red was like oh, one of my favorite games ever. So, I mean, as a kid, my brother had it and I didn't. So I used to wake up every day and play Pokemon Red all day with the Game Boy plugged into the wall and I wasn't allowed to save his game. So I turn it off at the end of the day, wake up the next day, play Pokemon Red all day, turn it off, wake up the next day, play Pokemon Red all day. So especially the first half of the game, I know that way too well. Like I can look at trainers and say, okay, he's the guy with the level 20 Butterfree that has all the moves that give status conditions. He's the guy who uh, has Pokemon that explode at you all the time. And like that's the boy who likes his shorts. And that guy's the rock tunnel entrance guy with the slow poke. And... I can, yeah, I, I've got to, like, I, I just like this game way too much. And so the fact that they're playing this game, if it was any other game, I may not be as addicted to it, but I just love this game so much. Do you think that you guys will actually make it all the way to the Elite Four? Oh, yeah, we'll finish the game. Okay. Definitely. 100% seriously, we're going to complete this game. Like, we beat the ledge, we can do anything. Especially with democracy mode, it's like, it's a cakewalk now. Now, there's a, there's a bit on the west of Viridian City. And you'd think, I mean, it leads up to the Pokemon League. In the actual game, it seemed like a super easy bit. Like, why, why would this bit be difficult? It's funny how now all that level design that seemed perfectly innocuous 
is really dangerous. Like, all the rockets, the Team Rocket guys who stood in the doorways, when you're a kid, a guy standing in a doorway, that's not a very good guard, is it? He's not, like, he's pretty incompetent at doing his job. But now, it takes so long to get through that tiny little pathway that the rockets are actually really good, like, barriers and obstacles for stopping our progress. Alex Rose is a game designer based out of Manchester in the United Kingdom. He is also the IRC moderator and the subreddit moderator for Twitch Plays Pokemon. Thanks for additional help from our Helixers, Adam Horowitz and George Bowden. We believe in uh, anarchy. We believe in Lapras. Uh, we believe in Jay Leno. We believe in a lot of weird things. Uh, it's just for fun. We had a nice little religious war. It's also left, led to some fantastic fans. On to our romance section. So, one of the most common ways to convey romance in video games is through story choices. So games that allow a player to explore a world or a narrative tend to have more romance. That Grand Theft Auto 4 let you date women. Some role-playing games give you long storylines with potential partners like Dragon Age or Mass Effect. All right, Sid, here's the deal. You need me to ravage you. Um, maybe... Don't worry. I'm fully equipped to pleasure But these games have nothing on the visual novel. And with that, let's get to our guest, Conrad. Conrad Kraling, founder and lead programmer of Date Night so a visual novel uh, is sort of a type of game descendant. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very Japanese format of game. There are um, words on the bottom, uh, portraits, backgrounds on top, uh, some light effects, maybe minimal animation. Um, it's, uh, I think a very uh, accessible example would be something like the exploration sequences in Phoenix Wright. So, and those are all just about kind of progressing in the story and staying on track of a narrative. Yeah, that's right. We we focus uh, almost exclusively on on narrative structure uh, with what we do. Visual novels tend to be more popular in Japan than in North America, but they're pretty simple games. A visual novel is like a giant flowchart narrative that often focuses on picking a romantic partner. Even the more elaborate fantasies like Fate's Day Night tend to tie each storyline to a lady you can date. But, a quick warning before you dive in, they can tend to be pretty pornographic. Now, the, the fundamental stereotype for a visual novel is that it's pornographic or that it's kind of overly simplistic. Um, how does that compare to what is actually available? Uh, I would say that that is um, kind of an unfortunately narrow definition, but not one without merit is the way that I'll put it. There's nothing inherently about the platform uh, that makes it more suited for um, you know pornographic uh, games or games exclusively about forming relationships. But... Uh, many of these games are about that, and particularly some of the higher visibility games have been. So while it's 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 like a really easy misconception, uh, I see kind of where it comes from. At least when it comes to Japanese visual novels, the it's kind of like a non sequitur with the sexual content a lot of the time. I, I mean, I remember playing through Fate Stay Night, and that sexual, they do not prep you that that game is going to be as sexually explicit as it becomes. 
Yeah, that's that's true. And I will say uh, one of the things I've noticed particularly about Japanese releases is that in many cases they will need to release on platforms that don't necessarily allow sexual content. So the sexual content ends up becoming sort of a bolt-in, bolt-out situation so that the PC release or maybe a release at a later date can feature sexual content, but the console release or the first round of PC release uh, can ship without it. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I feel you. There are There are plenty of games that we've played in the office that it's it's like a speed bump. I know there was a game I was playing featuring uh, high school students in a band, and it was right in the middle of the game. It's very suddenly just an optional sequence, and uh, I, I too was caught a little bit flat-footed. So if you want to sell a more explicit visual novel on the Apple App Store where they censor anything pornographic, that's going to be difficult. That's where Conrad comes in. He's working on a web-based visual novel creator called HTMLVN. You can actually see a finished game using that engine right now. It's called Namco High. This is a game where you can fall in love with almost any Namco character. We're talking Mr. Driller, which is a boy with a drill on his head, and the ship from Galaga. The, the, our contact at Namco, of course, was uh, Shifty Look, and Shifty Look deals primarily in old properties that they're trying to breathe new life into. So, uh, yes, you could romance anything, so long as anything was older than 10 years. Uh, and then, yeah, of course, we had, we had Andrew Hussey's Homestuck characters uh, in the game as well, which people went crazy for. How involved was Andrew Hussey in the actual design of the game? Uh, he was the creative director, so uh, you know he he was he was well involved. He you know read all the scripts. I believe he was responsible for some of the scenario design. I will say on the development end, um, we were insulated from a lot of that. We would receive scripts and direction and critiques and you know uh, changes for moves. Um, so as far as the blow for blow, um, I'm not entirely sure, but I will say that uh, you know his his he was definitely present. His his involvement was clear. And uh, so, okay. So, when you're building this this game for for uh, for them, um, how did uh, how did the process work? So, what were you guys doing? Um, what, what was your your focus, kind of, in terms of building this world? Um, as far as as far as building the world, we we wanted to encapsulate what we felt were the best parts of like a long form uh, Japanese visual novel, but for an audience sitting at their computer, maybe they've got a couple hours to play. We, we wanted to find a balance between this. So you'll notice that there are like 14, 15, or no, it was 18 characters in the end. Um, and their, their storylines aren't super... They, the characters suffer complete arcs, and you, you really see the character grow and develop throughout that. But they're not necessarily... They don't take necessarily a long time to play. And I think that was one of the big things we wanted to capture. Uh, the high school setting was sort of a tip of the hat to the old games, you know, the old visual novels that we all grew up playing. Um, yes, yeah, as, as that, so that's where we were coming at it. That was, that was our contribution, I think, was the uh, kind of that feeling, that aesthetic. But back to the topic at hand. In North America, visual novels are often used by members of the LGBT community to tell personal stories. Even Namco High had a little bit of that. The main character, Cousin, has no explicit gender. Um, it's, it's interesting. We find ourselves producing what I guess you could call non-traditional media. Uh, so Namco High is a good example. Uh, in Namco High, Cousin does not have a set gender. And in fact, we never use gendered pronouns, for example. Uh, cousin is who who you want Cousin to be. Cousin is a blank slate uh, for a projection of your, your gender and your identity. And of course, all of the characters in Namco High interact with Cousin, regardless of what you're identifying Cousin as. And this was, of course, very important for us. Um, our early titles, I will say, are... At present, they appear to be more in line with, um, you know, that kind of like alternate representation of uh, gender and sexuality. And uh, 
I feel like it's a really good place to do that. It's a really good place to experiment with stuff like that, particularly given the narrative. It's it's not just like uh, a character who is, oh, this character is gay. Okay, moving on. Uh, you actually get to kind of explore um, in many cases what, you know, what that means, what that is, how that affects uh, their relationships with other people. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, so yes and no, I wouldn't want to pigeonhole us, right? That's certainly not what we're doing exclusively. But will some of our early titles uh, have alternate representations of gender and sexuality? Oh yeah, totally. And I think that's great. I'm way into it. One of the most popular tools to do so is called RenPy, which is just an easy PC-based visual novel creator. These games can then be fairly explicit, especially if they explore sexuality. That means, however, that RenPy games are harder to sell on any environment where they censor adult content. HTMLVN exists separately of Namco High and all this stuff. You, you're, it's a system that you guys are building out. Um, describe what it is for people who don't know. Yeah, sure. HTMLVN, um, the easiest way to think about it is uh, RenPy for the web. Um, and really, that's what I was targeting. Uh, one of my friends had approached me with an idea that was uh, an adult-oriented content, and I knew that I would run into trouble distributing it on the App Store or the Google Play Store. I would have trouble distributing it on Steam. And so I kind of had to shrug my shoulders and say, like, well, I can sell it directly, but I can't even do that on iPad, for example. What am I going to do? Oh, I'll just go to the web. Uh, so essentially, I'm trying to, trying to make a system that allows you to use a RenPy-esque system but target the web. For instance, the adult game that you guys were working with, um, did, was that leaning towards like the more pornographic? Or was it more like this is part of the story and you want to just have this um, sexual content in here? So the the property that you know we're we're working on in that regard, and uh, boy, boy, I wish I could talk more about this, but uh, you're maybe like three weeks too early. Um, and don't worry, I'll come back. Uh, the the content that we were working on was more pornographic in nature, I would say. Um, it uh it is derivative of um it, it's the genre is called BL or boys love, mm -hmm. um and it primarily focuses on male relationships um and lot a lot of sex and uh, it's extremely explicit so that was the, that was where we started which made it very clear for me it wasn't it wasn't for example the first title we were working on wasn't something that just happened to feature sex as part of the narrative sex was a central and so I knew that was going to be kind of that was going to be an issue uh in you know obviously in terms of selling uh selling in different avenues so. Um, now, what we're working on in the future, we are we want to run the gamut. Um, so we have some internal IP that we're working on that's actually clean. It's more of uh, what's referred to as an Otome game, uh, which you know, while feature while it does feature uh, romantic elements, doesn't necessarily feature sex per se. Uh, I'm working on another title uh, with another creator that features sex, but as a part of the narrative, not necessarily as a central focus. Uh, you know, so we really we really want to cast a wide net. And with visual novels, you know, it's such a uh, diverse and uh, large platform that we can really get away with doing all of that, which is a ton of fun. Otome games are tr traditionally they're they're for women. Yeah, exactly. So um, in this game, there are there are the romantic options are primarily male, although there are there are two women uh, in our the game that we're producing right now, uh, and you can actually pick to play as either um, a boy or a girl in this game, uh, which we also felt was very important. So while the structure is reminiscent of an Otome game, I would say it's not what we're doing is not strictly an Otome game, uh, which is one of the things that actually really, uh, I really liked about it. Is, has, has that been a challenge for a lot of visual novel creators that their content seems to have trouble getting onto app stores and, uh, or Google play? You know, um, I don't necessarily know how much trouble other creators have encountered in this regard because the North American VN market is a little bit nacy and it's a little bit new. Uh, so I, f I feel like to a degree it's still kind of shaking out. 
Um, I will say that when I evaluated it, it wasn't worth the trouble and it wasn't worth the risk more than anything. I didn't want to invest a bunch of time into an Android game, for example, only to find out like, ah, can't do that. Uh, and only be able to do direct download sell-through on PC. Uh, that wasn't acceptable for me, and I knew I could mitigate those risks immediately if I just went to the web. Do you find that the App Store is kind of unnecessarily censoring these games? I see the idea. Um, do I think it's necessarily wise of them to box out an entire category of game like this, particularly like um, you know sexual in nature? I, I don't think that's a super strong decision. I like the idea that there's a lot of content for a lot of different, you know, diverse groups. Um, so when when push came to shove, I personally wasn't willing to buy into that. And for what it's worth, I've done the App Store thing before. Uh, I released Creepers on iPhone uh, back at Muse Games. And uh, the App Store is a nightmare. Like, m- maybe direct sell-through will be even worse. I don't know yet. Let's find out. But uh, the App Store is a mess. It's crowded. It's impossible to find anything. Um, I'd like to avoid it if at all possible. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, hey. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Conrad Kraling is the co-founder of Date Naito. Before he went, I actually asked Conrad about a couple recommendations for visual novels you can try out. The obvious one is Virtue's Last Reward, but he had a few other pretty good ones. Do you know, I'm really excited to play Danganronpa. Um, obviously, this has gained a lot of traction. It's up for Vita now. Um, I haven't played it yet, though, so it's difficult for me to recommend. And of course, I mentioned uh, Virtue's Last Reward. Any of the Phoenix Wright games, although we're leaning away from that puzzle-solving, like, find-the-pixel aspect... Um, you mentioned Fate Stay, uh, which I didn't get super far in, but looked pretty good. I do believe it's uh, 18 plus, though. Oh, yeah, anything by Christine Love, man. Um, you know, obviously, Analog of Hate Story or Hate Plus. Uh, I fell in love with those. Actually, fun story. Uh, the only reason Date Night exists is because I played Christine Love's uh, Don't Take It Personally, Babe, and fell in love with visual novels again. And uh, I wanted to make one, and that's the entire story. Christine Love is actually a Toronto-based game designer, and we had an interview of her back in August of 2013 when her game Hate Plus was first coming out. Um, we'd be remiss if we didn't share a bit of that with you right now. I originally started out as um, um, like just a prose writer. Like I thought that my thing would be I would just write novels, and that's my background. And I sort of um, got into visual novels because they do a lot of... Um, they're, they're fundamentally prose-based, but they do a lot of interesting things with um, uh, visuals, music, interactivity, and it just seemed to me to be so much more powerful than just, you know, just putting words on a page. Mm-hmm. And I was just drawn to all the, um, um, really, the storytelling potential that they have. Uh, like, what, what kind of specific stuff do you think it has? Like, what are, what are kind of specific advantages do you think it has over just prose? Well, I feel like I can get you much more um, um, strongly um, engaged with the story if you feel like you are, um, you know, t- taking part in it. So interactivity is it, it's, it's a huge thing. Just like actually putting you in in the role of the character rather than just reading about mm-hmm. someone. There's always a little bit of a disconnect, and I think interactivity makes that jump. I, I was wondering that hate plus at least kind of I I've still only really played the the first day or so, um, but it but it kind of feels a lot like an extended take on a lot of the themes you tackled there. Did you kind of did, are you was kind of part of coming back just you know there was another you know you want to tell more of the story or was were there some themes that you felt like you needed to continue addressing? Well, rather I felt like it was um like there was a different story to tell here. Like it, it definitely is you know it's linked. It's still based on. It's still trying to explain how does the society that exists in analog happen, 
but it's also, you know, looking at how people in a modern society um, deal with, um, with, with, with these situations. So it's not necessarily that I'm trying to tackle the same theme so much as I felt like those were themes that were just a part of exploring what Hate Plus was about also. Mm-hmm. The um, there I mean, and there are a lot of themes that kind of make themselves. They just kind of like keep showing up through. You mentioned kind of off the top that it is, you know, it's a game about the 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 what was it sorry the slow erosion of patriarchy is ta- uh, patriarchy taken for granted. I think you said, um, which is kind of that that kind of goes on to society. But there there are other themes that kind of show up a lot. Um, LGBT themes are also like super common in your game, and and themes of ex- acceptance. Um, and that how does that stuff kind of impact the story and you know come from your life as well well i don't feel like i'm, I'm necessarily interested in um, preaching acceptance it, it's just um you know i feel like these are not voices that are traditionally heard and i i think they ought to be that's always my concern like my concern with analog was trying to look at people who didn't historically have voices and therefore try to extrapolate what they would have been saying if people would let them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, um, I have queer characters in my games because, I mean, I'm queer, but also just that's... It would be unrealistic not to. Like, it would be ridiculous if I had a... If, if I was trying to pass off a world where only heterosexuality... Where only strict heterosexuality exists as realistic, because that's not how people work. That's, like, not... That at, at no point in history has that ever been true. We like to pretend it is, but like it's completely ahistorical. It's completely wrong. And kind of, especially, especially through mute, like you see, mute's definitely kind of preaching something similar to that. Like this isn't right. This is not what the story is is like. And it's, I guess, it's, it's interesting to me to see kind of like you're, you know, presenting th- this history that you're writing, which is very sort of realistic or at the same time the kind of character is still fighting against it is that sort of like how does that kind of play into saying stuff like that well i think um mute's like mute's perspective on um a lot of things is um i think it's a really valuable one insofar as it lets you understand like where these awful attitudes come from like mostly um uh, analog and hate plus are about misogyny but they are also also like mute is sort of she could be homophobic if she could actually even wrap her mind around the idea of um, of lesbianism at all. But I feel like being able to explore that is it gives me a chance to actually you know look at like what are some of the root causes of um, of homophobia. It's you know it, it's this complete inability to empathize or even understand. So in that way, certainly you can use um, someone like Mute to explore explore those themes and explore um you know what kind of mindset doesn't accept people mm-hmm. so i feel like that's like the first the first step to you know fighting anything is you have to understand it and if you don't understand you know how misogynist works or homophobes work or whatever have you then you can't really deal with them you, you otherwise you're just you know talking over each other's heads And that was Christine Love. You can find her most recent game, Hate Plus, on Steam. 
She's currently working on a project called the, the Interstellar Selfie Station, which allows you to take photos that are legally dissimilar from the Game Boy camera. That's it for this week. I'm producer Amanek Bali. And I'm featured editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Uh, Alex Rose. Adam Horowitz. George Bowden. And Conrad Kraling. For an extended version of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitchy Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people can find the show. But leave us a positive review because if you leave us a negative review, we'll uh, make you into a playable character in Deep Down. We're usually on the air on the scope at Ryerson every Saturday at 1 p.m. and rerun every Monday and Thursday also at 1 p.m. Plus, check out our website for our theme month, Can Love Bloom Even on the Battlefield? This week, a meditation on romantic options and why boys should kiss more often. And we update the website every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at built to play and me personally at Flarkon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen, and I'd ask for another moment of silence for the year of Luigi. Thank you so much for listening.